You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Barrett. Join Wisconsin Public Radio Tuesday afternoon for live special coverage of the State of the Tribes Address. It starts around 1 in the Wisconsin State Capitol. Hear from Robert Van Zyl, who's chairman of the Sakagan Chippewa Community. It's live special coverage of the 2023 State of the Tribes Address at 1 o'clock Tuesday here on Wisconsin Public Radio and online at WPR.org. Now, attacks on transgender people have risen in recent years, both physically and politically. Some conservative politicians have taken aim at the trans community as part of a so-called culture war. Last week at the Conservative Political Action Conference, commentator Michael Knowles went so far as to say that transgenderism should be, quote, eradicated. And more and more states are introducing anti-trans legislation that targets gender-affirming care as well as bathroom use and sports participation. According to a report from the ACLU, at least 385 of those pieces of legislation have have been introduced already this year, compared to 361 total over the five previous years. Rhetoric is raising concerns about a more hostile environment for transgender people that could have effects on their mental and physical health. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have about the laws and politics and rhetoric related to trans people? If you or a loved one identifies as transgender, what are you seeing in your community? How is this affecting you? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Carrie Costello is an associate professor of sociology and director of LGBTQ plus studies at UW-Milwaukee. Carrie, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. We hear, I think, a lot in the news uh, when new laws are introduced, when new political statements are made. How are you seeing this all affecting, though, uh, people, actual people who are transgender? I see it affecting people, not just who are transgender, but the LGBTQ plus larger community as a whole. I can give you one example. I teach a large lecture class of sociology students, and I've been teaching that for many years. And before the class begins, I confidentially survey the students about many things, their demographics, their um, political beliefs, uh, their concerns, what topics they want to talk about. And over the years, I have watched more and more students be willing to identify themselves confidentially as LGBTQ+. Um, and uh, this semester, it was uh, about a third of the students who so identified. Out of 100, there's 31. Um, and nevertheless, when given the opportunity to describe themselves in their written exercise, introducing themselves, there's been a plunge in the percentage of students who are willing to say in front of their peers that they're a member of the LGBTQ plus community. It's down to 6%. Just three years ago, it was half of the students who were confidentially LGBTQ plus who were willing to say that in front of a large class. Um, So there's been just a great rise in fear and a rush for the closet on parts of students who would in just a few years ago have been comfortable talking in front of their peers. In your view, what is driving uh, both the rhetoric and the legislation around the country that I mentioned uh, at the outset? Oh, yeah. Well, we have seen um, that this has gotten, it, it's it's seen as politically energizing, particularly um, on the right. So uh, Republican politicians currently find that they are able to generate excitement and outrage um, at, uh, uh, and that this is a, this, they picked this particular group of people to focus on because um, 
the, on the left, Democratic support, um, people willing to step up on, in favor of protecting uh, transgender, non-binary um, folks uh, is more tepid than the opposition on the right. Um, and so as uh, political organizations on the right have lost the ability to generate political excitement about um, uh, other matters, such as uh, same-sex marriage. Um, they have instead focused on trans issues um, in order to generate that sense of, of uh, you know, generate contributions, that sort of thing. And it's really effective. Um, and we have seen just in the space of a few years, Republicans become much more conservative and unsupportive of trans folks. Um, a big drop uh, in what was about half of Republicans saying they were basically supportive of trans folks to that plunging down into the 20s um, since 2017. So it's become activated and they use it to, you know, they say, you know, whatever, uh, 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 energize the base. How does this affect, uh, as you see it, uh, the daily life of uh, of transgender people in particular? Are we seeing uh, concerns about uh, harassment online or, or in public? Oh, for sure. Um, just about uh, I myself am uh, an intersex gender transitioner, and so is my wife. Um, so we were both born um, with atypical sex characteristics and assigned one sex at birth, and then as adults switched to the other side, did a little dosey do. Um, and uh, I therefore, I, you know, know a lot of folks who are um, intersex and trans, and just about everybody is facing harassment of some kind. But for folks who are visibly trans feminine. Um, like my wife, uh, street harassment has just gotten really um, disturbing. Uh, so the, you just seen a disinhibition of bullies um, where some people are just feel like they now have a right to attack you in person um, and that that's like morally justified. And it's scary. It's scary to be on the receiving end of that. And as someone who, you know, teaches at a public university, who talks about these issues, uh, the online world, not always a friendly place in any circumstance. Uh, have you seen yourself uh, targeted online? Uh, sure. Yeah, actually, I've I've been swarmed by uh, whatever trolls, people who just, uh, you know, have joined together in order to attempt to, like, smash you, destroy you um, online. A number of times now. I did just a couple of months ago, I had 500 people um, swarm me on social media, um, you know, telling me that I'm delusional and uh, and that I should commit suicide, like all trans people eventually do, and just it's and just posting really vile image memes um, with extraordinary negative stereotypes, uh, and it's difficult to receive. Um, although it's easier online than in person, um, and uh, and I know like uh, my my wife faces more in person harassment than I do, and I really regret that. We are talking about uh, transgender related legislation. Lots of it around the country already this year, targeting things like uh, gender affirming care and more. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Carrie Costello is with us, Associate Professor of Sociology at UW-Milwaukee. Let's bring in a caller now. Lisa is with us in Madison. Lisa, hi. Hi. It's, you know, it's seen, we've seen that authoritarian countries have done this exact same thing with the LGBTQ issues, particularly Putin. And then in Hungary, we have Viktor Orban, 
who he he called it illiberal democracy or Christian democracy. And I guess, like your guest said, it's a way to kind of throw red meat to the base. And and it's frightening to watch the GOP mirror these authoritarians and an attempt to stay in the power. Lisa, thanks for the call. And there are prominent examples of, of some American conservatives praising uh, authoritarian leaders like Putin f- along those same uh, concerns that uh, Lisa was just bringing up. Carrie, what do you think about uh, Lisa's thoughts? I think that Lisa is correct. <laughs> Uh, Lisa, thanks for that call at 800-642-1234. Carrie, I want to get into some of the specific legislation, a lot related to uh, gender-affirming care, uh, which, mm-hmm. first of all, covers a lot of ground. We use that yes, phrase, gender-affirming care. Can you take us through the, the the many things that could be included in that? Sure. So um, gender-affirming care is being attacked in uh, uh, 188 bills currently. Um and mostly those aim at uh, minors, but not all of them. And there are a few that define minors as somebody up to age 26, which is peculiar. Um, but let's just talk about what happens when a, a young person uh, tells their parents that um, that this is their gender identity. Um, and the, the care that is provided to people when they are kids is... Um, medical support that is purely psychological. (laughs) So that means doctors will uh, affirm the child's um, gender identity, will um, give give them access to counseling so that they can discuss it and um, elaborate and figure out exactly what their identity is and will help them deal with um, navigating a world in which people can be cruel to people like them when they're kids. Um, then as, uh, people approach puberty, there's the possibility, which not at all, all people seek, but some do of puberty suppression. And all that does is delay the time, um, uh, before you, your body changes and develops secondary sex characteristics, like a beard or breasts or whatever it is that you would not want to develop, um, and gives you more time so that you can, uh, get old enough to be able to access, uh, care. Um, and have everybody have full confidence in your your competence <laughs> to make that sort of decision. Um, puberty suppression is not new. We've been doing it for many decades, and it didn't used to be controversial because it was largely directed at either cisgender children um, for precocious puberty, or it was um, aimed at intersex children uh, in a, without their requesting it <laughs> in order to uh, for, for doctors to direct the ways in which their bodies developed. Um, so it's only become controversial now that it is also being accessed by some trans youth to postpone their puberties. Um, things like uh, surgery are never performed on children. Um, there are a couple of clinics that will have given some 17-year-olds access to top surgery uh, who are people, kids who have uh, been out for, you know, years and years and years with the full support of their parents. Everybody in their community knows them as a boy, um, and they are uncomfortable. And I should note that we give top surgery to cisgender girls at much higher rates. So girls who feel uncomfortable with a very large chest um, are allowed to access uh, chest reduction surgeries all the time. We give the same surgeries to cisgender boys uh, who develop breasts, um, which is called gynecomastia, 
Um, and they're allowed to make the decision that they are uncomfortable with that, and they are given access to surgery to reduce that as teens. So again, this is not new for transgender people, uh, but it is an option that some people have access, but very few <laughs> as teens. We're talking about, um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Carrie. But please. And and then there's um, genital reconstruction mm-hmm. surgery, which gets bandied about as if five-year-olds are being given genital reconstruction surgery. And that only happens to intersex kids. It does not happen to trans kids. Um, so it's just a myth. Okay, go ahead. We're talking about anti-transgender politics, rhetoric, and legislation with UW-Milwaukee LGBTQ plus studies director and sociology professor Carrie Costello. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your thoughts on a wave of legislation in states around the country related to transgender issues, gender-affirming care, as we were just talking about, and more? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Carrie Costello, sociology professor, director of LGBTQ plus studies at UW-Milwaukee, with us today to talk about how anti-transgender legislation and political rhetoric is impacting transgender people. You can join in at 800-642-1234 if this is an issue that's affecting you directly and you're willing to share your story. Love to hear from you at 800-642-1234. If you have thoughts on the politics around all of this or you have questions for our guest, join in 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Chris is with us in Fairchild. Chris, hi. Hi. Um Listening to uh, the conversation here, uh, one thing I would like to add is that I'm I'm deeply troubled. Uh, I'm very angered by the right or, you know, that side of politics trying to politicize this. I just see it as kind of like a a schoolyard bully trying to pick on someone that uh, maybe can't put up enough of a defense. You know, I I just say to them, if you want to pick on somebody, pick on someone your own size. Um, I just I I thank you for the guests coming on and expressing their story. And, you know, everybody deserves to uh, express who they are, how they are, the way they want to be and feel. Chris, thanks a lot uh, for the call. Carrie, I want to dig into one of Chris's points, the notion that uh, transgender people are a particularly uh, politically vulnerable community in the United States. You touched on that a little bit earlier. Can you talk about that a little more? Sure. And it's completely true that uh, trans people are quite vulnerable, both in terms of the high rates of violence that people experience. So um, trans youth experience bullying at twice the rate of other LGB um, uh, youth, and those children experience about twice the rate of bullying of cisgender straight children. So we're just seeing, you know, high levels of um, alienation and fear. Uh, And we know from uh, the uh, Trevor Group did a um, survey of trans youth in two, uh, last year in 2022, um, and 86% of the non-binary and trans uh, youth survey said that, they're neg- that they, there had been a negative impact on their mental health as a result of these bills making them fear for their safety. 
Thanks for that call, Chris, at 800-642-1234. We heard from Carol in Oshkosh, who couldn't stay on the line, called in to say she has family and friends in Oklahoma, where legislators introduced a plethora of bills that affect the trans community, but bills also affect medical providers. And Carol says the legislators are not following the science that supports these treatments. Uh, Is that a theme you're seeing, Carrie, where at least what we know about the science of gender-affirming care isn't reflected in some of the proposed laws? So this is really interesting because absolutely it is not. But when you survey uh, Americans and ask them about their opinions of trans issues as of this year, um, actually transphobic individuals who are opposed to allowing gender transition to be recognized say that they are following the science 47% of the time, whereas those who are supportive of trans folks only say that it's science that determines their positions 40% of the time. So there is a whole um, sort of rhetoric out there about the idea that um, science says there are only two sexes and everybody who is in denial of the supposed medical truth is um, crazy and delusional. And as an intersex person, I think that's pretty hilarious. Um, but that uh, the the way in which that um, truth that most uh, that all of the major medical associations in the United States plus the science scientists studying um, trans folks say that uh, that gender transition is the correct path in order to um, resolve issues of gender dysphoria and make people live happy lives. Um, that that uh, those who oppose the transphobic. Uh, individuals say that actually the science is behind them because their high school textbook said, look, there's two sexes. Here's how it works. Well, I want to talk about how to maybe have more productive conversations because a lot of us were brought up with a school with a boy's bathroom and a girl's bathroom. And the notion that there are these two really easy categories how, what are better ways, more productive ways to, to talk about that uh, and recognize that? Yeah, maybe it isn't quite so cut and dried. I think like many things, it's best to have some perspective. Um, So looking at the whole range of um, societies over world history, if you go and you look at how they arrange sex and gender, um, having a binary system is very much in the minority. That um, the large majority of uh, world historical societies and indigenous societies today recognize more than two gender categories because there have always been intersex people and there have always been people who move between categories. So this isn't something in any way new. I mean, uh, so I myself am Jewish and in Jewish tradition under the rules of halakha that tell you, you know, how you're supposed to appropriately practice, there are four birth sexes that are recognized, um, male, female, androgyne, and tumtum, because all world societies have had to deal with the fact that sex is actually a spectrum, not a binary. Um, So understanding that this is not some new thing that suddenly is appearing and changing everything might allow people to have some more perspective and to react with less uh, fear. And at the outset, Carrie, you said, you know, there are attacks on transgender uh, people, literally, politically, rhetorically. And you don't see, for example, uh, Democratic politicians necessarily standing up on the other side. What would you like to see uh, when it comes to a, a response to this wave of legislation? Yeah, it is really sad to me the extent to which bullies have been successful in getting people to just shut up and be unwilling to stand up for people who are being attacked. Um, 
and I see this in scary places. Like, uh, for example, um, in, in, in scientific research communities, uh, there's right now you have people who are attacking trans youth saying you can't access, say, puberty expression because we're not satisfied with the science. There's not enough research, even though we've been doing it for 50 years and there is a standard amount of research, um, but they're saying there's not enough. So what you would want is to do some more studies. But the uh, the scientists who engage in these studies are often doctors affiliated with um, hospitals, and those hospital administrations have been pulling them and telling them you can't do this anymore because there's been a rash of bomb threats at children's hospitals um, when the hospital says, yes, we uh, have a clinic that uh, treats trans youth. Um, and that's, that's really sad. The, the allowing bullies to determine, you know, what sort of science takes place and um, what sort of politics takes place. You have to stand up to bullies. Carrie, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. That's Kerry Costello, Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of LGBTQ Plus Studies at UW-Milwaukee, with us today to look at the ways that anti-transgender legislation and political rhetoric impact the transgender community and how to support them. The Milwaukee-based nonprofit Diverse and Resilient offers a hotline for those struggling in the LGBTQ plus community. Their number is 414-856-LGBT. That's 414-856-5428. The Nationwide Trans Lifeline can also be reached at 877-565-8860. That's 877-565-8860. Coming up Monday here in Central Time, it can be hard to have good conversations about difficult topics, but it can be done. Get some advice with the authors of the new book, Say the Right Thing. And many Americans don't feel engaged at the workplace, according to a recent survey. We'll find out what's driving that trend and what it means for our personal lives and the jobs we do. Plus, check in on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Got a couple good conversations going about food and names there. And then tune in Monday here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up on a special edition of Food Friday, we're asking you about the foods you used to dislike as a child but really enjoy now. Now, a former federal prosecutor has written a book based on a question people used to ask him all the time. How do powerful people get away with it? It's common for leaders of criminal organizations, he writes, to get more lenient sentences or skirt the law altogether while their underlings are more harshly punished. Outside of criminal groups, he says rich and powerful people face a high bar when it comes to successful prosecutions. And he says former President Donald Trump benefits from these inequalities in the legal system. Our guest says that those in power know how to exploit the legal system to their own advantage and to do so systematically. He writes, quote, Nothing protects power like power itself. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a question for our guest, longtime prosecutor, about how prosecuting decisions are made, how people with more resources, uh, more connections, maybe are harder to prosecute along the way? Are you watching these stories about former President Trump and potential prosecutions dropping hypothetically any time now? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Ellie Honig worked as a federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York for over eight years, where he specialized in organized crime. 
He also worked for several years in the New Jersey Attorney General's Office, where he led the Division of Criminal Justice. He's a senior legal analyst for CNN, and his new book is called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Ellie, thanks a lot for joining us today. Rob, thanks for having me. First of all, though, I, I think I get a shot at the Food Friday question, don't I? Before we get Sure, the go book? for it. Of course. Lasagna. For me, it's lasagna. I never liked it when I was a kid. It weirded me out, and now it's delicious. Well, I'm glad to have you on the lasagna team. <laughs> That's a good place to start. Now, there in, we go. in your book, Ellie, you talk about a few different uh, categories of people who in some ways are, are hard to prosecute. And I want to start with your work prosecuting organized crime. You have a lot of examples uh, with the Gambino crime family. In a nutshell, why is it so much harder to prosecute that person at the top of the pyramid as opposed to the people doing the work on the street? You know, Rob, there's a lot of reasons for that. And it's become trendy and fashionable, I think, to say that certain people, including Donald Trump, but others as well, operate like a mob boss. I will say at the risk of tooting my own horn, I am uniquely qualified to make that judgment because that's what I did. I was a prosecutor of old school Cosa Nostra mafia figures here in New York City. And as I went back through my experiences, the cases I did, the trials I did, a lot of times, including mistakes that I made, I saw that those parallels really jumped out at me. There's so many examples. They know how to use their money, uh, not just to pay for their own lawyers, but to cover other people to make sure they don't flip. They know how to give an instruction to commit a crime without quite saying it explicitly. They know how to make their meaning known to people who follow them. They have the natural protection that comes with sitting at the top of a hierarchy. They limit their dealings to very few, very trusted people. They say as little as they need to say to get the point through. The people they are giving instructions to are usually criminals themselves. And so if they do flip, there's an obvious way uh, to attack them. So there are all sorts of benefits that accrue with being the boss. We all are familiar with the boss having more money and more power. But one of the biggest benefits is that it's hardest to prosecute the boss. One example you give is, is of a murder case where a person uh, toward the top of the crime family mm-hmm. informed that somebody might be informing, might be flipping, uh, and their six words were, do what you have to do. Now, if yeah. I'm charged with a crime in that situation, I would say, well, I didn't. I said, do what you have to do. That didn't mean that I didn't say the word kill or murder or anything like that. Talk about the challenges that can raise. Exactly right. I opened the book with this story of a very difficult case I prosecuted where the boss of the Gambino family was the uncle to the eventual murder victim. The murder victim was suspected by the Gambino family of being a police informant. So they wanted to kill him, but they knew they had to send word to the boss, who was also his uncle, to get permission. So they sent word into prison, and this boss's response was those six words. Do what you have to do. Now, here's the beauty of that from his perspective. It was well understood within the mob what that meant. We had witnesses saying that. But a defense lawyer can stand in front of a jury and go, folks, do what you have to do can mean anything. It could mean beat him up. It could mean confirm that he's a cooperator and then get back to me. And so as a result of that, that case ended up, you know, it's not one of my more glamorous cases. We convicted everyone who was involved in that murder, including this boss, but he got a far lower sentence. We gave him a better plea deal than we gave to anyone else. And I say in the book, I still think about that case. I don't know if we did anything right, but this conundrum, how did the most powerful person get off the easiest, continues to stay with me. That's crime families. Another, I think, uh, situation where people say, hey, how do powerful people get away with it might be uh, a Bernie Madoff or uh, Jeffrey Epstein or something. Somebody who is committing egregious crimes over a long period of time, Talk about some of the challenges with this powerful, well-connected person who's not attached to an organized crime family. 
Yeah, the benefits of power accrue to others as well. And if you look at people like Jeffrey Epstein, like Harvey Weinstein, like Bill Cosby, celebrities, very powerful, very rich people. One of the points that I make in the book, I sort of do a bit on each of those cases. Now, you may think, well, all those people went to jail eventually. But the key word there is eventually. And the pattern that emerges is in all of those cases, prosecutors initially gave these guys either complete passes completely turned a blind eye to criminality or gave them very, very lenient plea deals. And it wasn't until really the media, you know, we can toot our own horns, I guess, sometimes in the media, until the media focused intense effort and energy and focus on those cases. Only then did those prosecutors go back and either recharge them more appropriately or charge those people for the first time. And so I, I make one of the points I make is that Prosecutors sometimes do look for the easy way out. And look, I was a prosecutor for 14 years total, and uh, but I am critical of prosecutors in this book. And I do say that sometimes prosecutors are too timid. Sometimes prosecutors don't want the fight. And sometimes prosecutors have to be forced to action by the public and by the media. One thing you talk about in the book that I'd never heard before is for the federal prosecution system now, there is a guideline or procedure, if I have this right, correct me if I'm wrong, Ellie, that... If you're going to prosecute somebody who's powerful, where there's maybe going to be a big media angle or something like that, you run it up the flagpole to main justice in a way that you wouldn't for, you know, a no-name everyday offender. How does that work? This is irrefutable proof that it, the bar is higher to prosecute a famous or powerful person than a normal person. And there's no debate about this because it's set out in writing in what we call the Justice Manual. That is a public document. You can find it on the Internet that guides all federal prosecutors across the country. And in various spots, that document says, if your potential subject is an elected official or somebody whose case is likely to draw wide media attention, it has to go up to higher and higher levels of review. And naturally, as a consequence of that, the more people who have to review it and sign off, the more likely it is that somebody's going to say, I don't see it. And I give a specific example in the book of a case of a professional baseball player, a major league baseball player who had a very minor involvement in a gambling aspect of one of my mob cases. He was a pretty well-known guy, not quite a household name, but any baseball fan or sports fan would know it. Case would have ended up on the front page of the New York Post or Daily News. If that guy was not a baseball player, if he was a butcher, if he was a contractor, I was probably a third or fourth year prosecutor at the time. I would have made that decision myself. Nobody would have come in and reviewed it. But because this guy was a bold-faced name, I had to send it up three or four levels up the hierarchy, every one of whom had to review it. And I'll tell you, the ultimate decision was not to charge him. I actually think that was the right decision in that case. I think I probably would have done that myself. But this guy got far greater consideration than he would have if he wasn't famous. Talking to Ellie Honig, former federal prosecutor. His new book is called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Let's go to your calls now at 800-642-1234. Kay is with us in Madison. Kay, hello. Hi. Um, I watch you on CNN a lot. And uh, I, I always figured that the reason that powerful people got away with it is that they had unlimited amounts of money to hire the very best lawyers and to pay and pay and pay those lawyers to keep fighting the case or if it goes to trial um, that they can win. Okay. Thanks for the call, Ellie. That is part of the story you tell. 
For sure, Kay, you've identified one of the big factors there. And I think that's fairly well known that people with limitless resources can pay. And I have examples in the book of, of people who paid. Uh, El Chapo Guzman, the notorious drug lord, paid $5 million for his defense. Raj Rajaratnam, an inside trader, paid $40 million for his defense. But I do want to say this. Having more expensive lawyers doesn't always necessarily equate exactly with higher quality of lawyers. I argue in the book, uh, public defenders sometimes get a bad rap, but they are great at what they do in many cases. The, the thing that I draw out in the book that I think is less known is that real powerhouses not only pay for their own lawyers, but pay for lawyers for other people around them. And they do that to make sure those people don't flip against them. Very, very common in the mob world, but you see it in the political world and the corporate world as well. And, and, I, and I draw that out with examples in the book. Okay, thanks for calling. We're talking to former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig about his new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, your questions for our guest, maybe your experiences working in the legal system, 800-642-1234. We've talked about mob bosses, rich and powerful people who commit crimes. Coming up, another category, presidents of the United States. The conversation continues coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. His new book is called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions for our guest, your thoughts on possible prosecutions of former President Donald Trump. The number is 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Dennis is with us in Two Rivers. Dennis, hi. Hello, yeah, Ellie, come on. I only need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Find the 11,000 votes for me. Dennis, thanks um, for the call. And Ellie, yeah, Dennis, yeah, take well, us to I, another big part of your book. Yeah, I mean, so so I'm glad you raised that. That is, of course, the uh, infamous quote from Donald Trump's call to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. And I'm actually glad the caller raised that example because this this is a good example of how you have to be careful not to oversimplify these cases. I will, you will never catch me on air saying the phrase smoking gun or slam dunk, other than sometimes I say this is not a smoking gun or slam dunk. Anyone who's ever stood in front of a jury knows that it's not a one-sided process. There will be a defense, a, a zealous defense. And people love to point to that excerpt, that one sentence from the, the Raffensperger phone call. But let's remember, that's a 62-minute long phone call. Here's something else Donald Trump says in that call, and I quote, I want to have the votes counted as they are, okay? Now, look, you can put them both up on the board if you're a defense lawyer and say, look, my client speaks from the hip. He's not the world's most articulate person. He's angry. But here's what he says, too. He says, I want those votes counted as they are. There's nothing criminal about that. In fact, that's what a president should be doing. So, look, my point here is it's never quite as simple as let's take one sentence and say, that's that. He's going down. Thanks for the call, Dennis, at 800-642-1234. And, Ellie, that brings us into the wider issue, this third category I mentioned of people who may be too powerful in some ways to prosecute presidents of the United States. Now, we have yeah. these memos from the Justice Department over the decades, not exactly saying it's completely unconstitutional and illegal to uh, prosecute a president, but we're not going to do it. <laughs> Can you talk about that yeah. a little bit? So this is sometimes people say DOJ cannot prosecute a president while he's in office. That's actually not quite right. The, the, the correct way to say it is DOJ has for decades now decided that it will not try to prosecute a sitting president. And there are memos that go back to the Nixon era, although they actually I did a, a, a dive on this. 
They actually wrote that memo because they were thinking about what to do with Spiro Agnew, who was the vice president. Of course, he was in his own bribery scandal unrelated to Watergate. And the answer came back very unfavorably for Spiro Agnew, which is good news. We don't think we can invite a sitting president. Bad news. We do think we can indict a sitting vice president, Mr. Agnew. Um, but that that policy has remained on the books for DOJ for 50 years now. They revisited it after the Clinton uh, impeachment, and they came to the same conclusion. Uh, that, of course, protects a president while he's in office. And it has a tail as a practical matter, because once you've put off a prosecution for two, three, four, six, seven years, it's that much harder to actually bring charges once the president leaves office. The president has other unique tools. He has the ability to pardon. And I argue in the book that there's a long history of presidents using pardons for, for dubious purposes, for family members, for friends, for cronies. Uh, but Donald Trump really learned to use the pardon to protect himself by pardoning people uh, as a reward for not testifying against him. Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn. And then finally, presidents have this tool of executive privilege, which they can use to sometimes get out of and sometimes just delay subpoenas and civil cases and potentially criminal cases. So all of those are tools that accrue to only the president himself. We do like to say no person is above the law. I do think we should add uh, an asterisk there that says, except perhaps the president. You spend a lot of the book analyzing uh, ways that uh, President Trump uses some of those presidential authorities you mentioned, but also some of the the techniques you outline, both with uh, other rich and famous people and organized crime families to see how he's avoided prosecution in cases where it was a possibility that there would be prosecution. What are some of the tools that that stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, look, I I do want to be clear. I do think that it's quite likely Donald Trump will be indicted at some point, probably fairly soon. And we have this new news out of the Manhattan DA. uh, But convicting him is a very different, uh, a very different proposition altogether. Um, Look, Donald Trump knows how to limit his contacts with people. He only has a very small, trusted inner circle. He's naturally gifted at going right up to that line of do what you got to do. Look at January 6th. He never quite said you're going to go to the Capitol, smash the windows and beat up police officers. Uh, but he said, be there, will be wild. And he gave his speech on the ellipse. And and many January 6th defendants have since said in court, I believe that was what Donald Trump was telling me to do. Um, he, he uses money uh, to perpetuate his power. He has paid for and provided for lawyers for people around him, which has compromised their ability to testify against him. So I don't know whether it's Uh, intentional or not. I mean, Donald Trump was involved in the real estate business here in New York City and in in New Jersey in the 70s and 80s when the mob was really at its apex. So I don't know if he absorbed the lessons from them um, consciously or subconsciously, but he's quite gifted at getting away with it, really. Talking to Ellie Honig, former federal prosecutor, author of the new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Well, I want to look at this uh, up-to-the-minute news here. You mentioned the Manhattan District Attorney, Uh, As reported by the New York Times, anyway, an invitation for former President Trump to talk to a grand jury, often a sign that a prosecution is in the offing. This follows one of the threads you follow in your book. Apparently, it's related to the uh, the hush money, so-called the payoffs to uh, Stormy Daniels and and another woman to prevent claims during the presidential campaign. Uh, Connect the dots between that and what we may see in Manhattan. 
So this is a really unusual story developing out of the Manhattan DA. I report in the book for the first time on what was happening behind closed doors at DOJ, at the Southern District of New York, my old office. Because while Trump was in office, DOJ had this prosecution of the hush money scheme. They prosecuted Michael Cohen for it. He pled guilty to that crime and several others. They could not charge Donald Trump at the time under the policy. So they didn't really have to wrestle with it until January of 2021, when they realized Trump was going to be leaving office. And I report in the book for the first time that DOJ had a series of internal meetings where they basically kicked around this question. What are, are we going to indict Donald Trump on this hush money payment? We know the answer. They did not do that. And I detail the whole back and forth. And there was some heated internal discussions as to why they decided not to do it. It's very strange to me, frankly, that the Manhattan DA is now considering bringing that charge. These payments are six and a half years ago when they were made. This was 2016. Barack Obama was president of the United States when these payments were made. It is a very, it is a strange fit for New York state laws. Um, It is, they are using an unusual theory. And even if Donald Trump is charged, tried and convicted under New York state law, it is unlikely that he would get a prison sentence. We are looking at either a misdemeanor or a very, very, the lowest level of felony. So I don't quite understand the logic behind it. I also should say it appears that the Manhattan DA is going to bank its case on Michael Cohen as the star witness. Michael Cohen, I should say, has become a friend of mine. And I'm also friends with the Manhattan DA. I I feel like I need to say that for disclosure Mm -hmm. purposes. But Michael Cohen is a very risky witness. He is a convicted, admitted perjurer. He has been convicted of committing other financial frauds. He has a white hot, very public, passionate hate for Donald Trump, which will color him as a as not an impartial witness. Um, and I report in the book, and this has been public, the feds rejected him. He tried to cooperate with the Southern District of New York, and they said no. They wrote a letter to the sentencing judge saying we don't think he was fully credible and forthcoming with us. So um, I believe Michael Cohen personally in what he says now, but that's not an easy witness to convince 12 jurors to believe beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, interesting distinction you make in the book. You lay out a number of things you think President, uh, former President Trump could have been prosecuted on. Some, I think you make the case that he should have been prosecuted, but you also say that doesn't mean, you know, throw whatever you got at him and hope something sticks and any prosecution is as good as another. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely, look, I'm a little bit of a prosecutorial purist. I'm not on board with the, somebody's got to nail this guy. I don't care what for, I don't care how. Um, But I do think that what should have happened, first of all, this is a job uniquely for the United States Department of Justice. You are going to run into all sorts of problems. I just laid some out. If you have county level elected partisan, I don't say that as a negative, but every county level prosecutor has a D or an R after their name. Um, If you have that level of prosecutor bringing charges, you're going to have legal challenges. You're going to have constitutional challenges. That goes for Manhattan. That goes for Fulton County. So I I argue in the book, this job of indicting a former president is uniquely for DOJ. Uh, I also think it has to be for very, very serious conduct. I do think January 6th and the attempt to steal the election certainly is over that bar. I guess the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago are maybe in a gray area. And I think this hush money payment is probably a not quite at the level of seriousness you would want for a first ever prosecution of a former president. And most importantly, it has to be done in a timely manner. And one of my big criticisms in the book is of Merrick Garland for taking now two plus years 
And he hasn't charged, forget about Donald Trump. He hasn't charged any person in any position of official power or near any position of official power relating to January 6th. And I know the Garland defenders say, well, he's deliberate. He's, he's taking his time. He's building his case. And, and he builds from the ground up, he always says. That's nonsense. That is not how good prosecutors operate. There's no reason Merrick Garland couldn't have sent out the subpoenas that are going out now to Cassidy Hutchinson, to Mark Short, to Pat Cipollone. He could have done those in the middle of 2021. This case could have been indicted in October, November of 2021. We would have had a powerful timely, appropriate prosecution of Donald Trump. Now, I I argue in the book, it's already too late. Ellie, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Pleasure to be with you. That's Ellie Honig, former federal prosecutor, author of the new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Coming up after the news, it's a special edition of Food Friday. We'll ask you about the foods you used to just hate as a kid, but you can't get enough of them now. We'll also take foods you didn't know about as a kid. Okra, one of mine. Love it now. You can get started right now on the Ideas Network Facebook page. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time.